Maury, how do you see it? Super Bowl, stock market, polling. What do these have in common? This is all prediction. Welcome to Power Politics, the Mishpacha podcast exploring the flashpoints of American and global current affairs and how they impact the Jewish community. I'm Benjamin Rose, Mishpacha's editor-at-large. And I'm Maury Litwack, a two-decade veteran of political campaigns at Capitol Hill. Join us weekly as we delve into these critical topics and more on power politics. On today's program, we will talk about how faulty and biased polling fed the red wave narrative that crested before it reached the shores of the Potomac. Also, do supporters of Israel in the U.S. have the right to voice their opinions on how Israel runs its foreign policy? And if so, where should the lines be drawn? And will all of Donald Trump's legal woes combine to knock him out of the presidential race? Or could he even find himself on trial? All this, plus Maury Litwax and my Influencer of the Week, and our fearless forecast coming up in this edition of Power Politics. So, we're going to talk about polling today, and as a political journalist, Maury, I plead guilty. When looking for story ideas, I have to admit a good poll is one of the easiest news hooks for me to build a piece around. But after several poor performance cycles by the pollsters, I'm wondering if I shouldn't be revisiting that kind of concept. And what really drove that home to me was an article in the New York Times that appeared last week where the Times noted Senate races in several states, Washington State, Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and New Hampshire, where pollsters all showed Republicans leading or within the margin of error, and all in states where they eventually lost, some by big margins. The Times singled out two culprits in particular, Trafalgar Group and Insider Advantage, who were both identified with the Republican Party, but they were also critical of Democratic polls such as Data for Progress that fed the narrative. The best quote from the story that I saw, and I'll get to a second one later, but the best quote I saw was Stephen Law, who's the CEO of Republican Senate Leadership Fund, which invested $280 million into the midterms. That's not a paltry sum. He said, these frothy polls had a substantial distorting impact on how people spent money, on campaign strategy, and on people's expectations going into the election. That's a mouthful in one sentence. Maury, how do you see it? Super Bowl, stock market, polling. What do these have in common? This is all prediction, the art of predictions and the, the art of forecasting. When you look at political polling, it has an unfortunate track record as of late of being wrong. I remember tweeting out probably a couple years ago, asking the people who I engage with on social media, do they believe any poll? Is there a pollster they believe? Is there a poll in particular they believe? And there was wide ranging skepticism and that continues to be the case. So I think when you look at and talk about polling, there's the internal skepticism within those running campaigns. And then there's the external skepticism within uh, the constituencies that make up the electorate. One of the best ways to think about polling and talk about polling is you have to remember that a ring occurs to your phone asking you a question saying, Binyamin, do you agree with this position? What do you think of this person? One out of 10 this, five out of six this, whatever it may be. And you have to realize that so many times those answers are not necessarily truthful answers. So many times people are not willing to give those answers in the way the pollsters may like. And then we take that information and it reminds me of the game of telephone that we've all watched kids play. We played as kids, which is one person says to the next person, whisper something in there, and then it goes to the next person, next person, next person, and then you end up with a garbled mess. That's what polling has become right now. So why do politicians keep doing it? And why do the public keep listening? I think the same reason why you have CNBC that is producing 
analysis after analysis, I think for two years now, about whether there's going to be a bear market or a bull market or bear market or bull market. The same reason you have ESPN that is feeding analysis about who's going to win the Super Bowl or the World Series or the World Cup or anything else like that. There's a desire to have predictions. There's a desire to sort of hear this out and, and analyze and put information into it. The difference, though, is, is that I don't think the average NFL or baseball coach or the average business is following and tracking those predictions or those analysis and then making decisions here. Whereas what you're saying and you're reading about is it appears that the campaigns and the elected officials are following analysis that is so often wrong. They're not only following it, they're falling for it. Uh, another great quote from Stephen Law, I said I would get to this, is he said that all of these effervescent polls and giddiness about a big red wave led some Republican candidates to believe all they had to do was play to late night cable and the hardcore base instead of reaching out to independent voters who decided the election. That's a serious condemnation coming from a fellow who spent $280 million on Republican Senate candidates. And going forward, this has to be corrected because if it isn't, the Republicans and any other party that follows this is going to be in a very difficult position. At the end of the day, it's that knock on the door. So are elected officials knocking on doors? Are the elected officials taking the time to actually see voters and hearing what voters have to say? It is short-sighted to believe that the conservative analysts or the liberal analysts are, are going to be the ones who you have to cater to as an elected official or to get elected. So I think that quote is incredible and probably accurate in the sense that it just requires that knock on the door. And I'm not surprised that so many people lost when there were just these wild assumptions starting two years ago that there was going to be a red wave and that there's sort of this automatic occurrence of election, which just didn't occur. Speaking about knocking on doors, I also noticed an article uh, a couple of months ago that talked about Ron DeSantis and how he knocked on, he, not he personally knocked on doors, but how Republicans knocked on doors at DeSantis's behest. And they were able to get several hundred thousand new voters registered, and that's what turned things around. The reason why DeSantis did that is because in the first race that he won for governor four years earlier, he only won by 36,000 votes. This time he won by uh, over a million votes or uh, a very substantial margin. So he, he realized that, listen, we have to get more people signed up for the Republican Party. So knocking on doors isn't only just to introduce yourself to the voter, but it's also to get voters on the voting rolls. And I, I know that's a very important topic that you've worked on for many years. You know, let's look at the right and left here in this election. What do DeSantis and Stacey Abrams have in common? Exactly what you're just talking about, which is an ability to register voters, get them to the polls, get them voting. And that's what this is all about. It's just funny that the political polling and campaigning, I don't even understand when you when you bring up a number like that, 100,000 voters or the numbers in Georgia, I don't understand how a pollster could possibly even analyze that data in a realistic way or understand where 100,000 voters are going to end up on election day who've never voted before. I don't even follow how that's possible. Yeah. And when you've got so many new voters, uh, then that's uh, going to skew the, uh, the polls. Personally, I like pollsters. In Israel here, I answer polls. I get them all the time on my cell phone. I'm very happy to uh, also tell the truth and say who I'm going to vote for and who I'm not going to vote for. But I guess a lot of other people have uh, trouble with that. Yeah. I don't know if I would answer a pollster. I don't know if I would. I'm very involved in politics. And many times when I get to their election day, there are some candidates still I'm thinking about what I'm going to do with. Where am I going to vote for them? And that may surprise people, but there's a lot of people on the ballot. And so it's incredible to me that we keep falling for this every election of this is what the polls say. So it's going to be sort of a fait accompli. 
I don't know. I can't believe that we continue to do this. And I just feel also that there used to be a better art and science to this than what's currently occurring. It's not in my fearless forecast later on, but uh, I would forecast storms and, and clouds and a lot of skepticism going forward for the uh, the polling profession. Pollsters will definitely have to go back to the drawing board. And uh, especially after the 2020 presidential election, uh, when uh, basically a lot of people thought that Donald Trump was going to be reelected and it turned out he wasn't, or uh, at least uh, most people think so, but not everyone. And Donald Trump uh, has been under investigation for uh, the better part of the last year for what happened on January 6th, uh, 2021. Another interesting article I saw on that topic this week was written by Douglas Shane, who's one of the top uh, Democratic strategists in America, but it was a very balanced article. He had a great lead. It said, in the new year, Merrick Garland, who's uh, the U.S. Attorney General, will face two unprecedented scenarios. He could become the first attorney general in American history to indict a former president, as well as the first attorney general to be impeached by Congress. So we know that the House Select Committee on uh, the January 6th uh, insurrection, if you want to call it that, or riot, if uh, you prefer a toned-down word, unanimously recommended four criminal charges against the former president for attempting to block the peaceful transfer of power. Whether that case is heard or not, or whether it results in an indictment, is going to be one of the topics that our guest uh, talks about today. Thrilled to have with us Dan Huff, was a senior advisor to President Trump in the White House. He was General Deputy Assistant Secretary for Enforcement at HUD. He served as counsel to the chairman of both the Senate and House Judiciary Committees. Prior to coming to Washington, he was a management consulting with McKinsey and Company in New York. He's a graduate of the Columbia Law School. His work has been featured in numerous outlets, including Wall Street Journal, Politico, Fox News. He serves on the board of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. I believe now he's uh, a bit of a tech entrepreneur as well. So uh, with us, welcome, Dan. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Dan, we, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about who they are. You have a, um, it's almost like a wish list for someone who doesn't want to be a lawyer in a law firm, but wants to go out and do incredible things with his legal mind. So how did you get started in this? Share us a little bit of your journey in politics. Well, I grew up in Boston. When I was a little kid, my parents would take me around to show me all of the great locations where historical things happened. Uh, the Boston Tea Party, the old meeting houses, et cetera. And that really infused in me a love of country. And I read later, you know, in Jewish history courses that, you know, America was really the first place that Jews could live sort of totally open from the beginning. That was from the beginning of the country. And it made me very proud of the country and want to, you know, work to improve it. And that sort of got me interested in politics. And really, I suppose it began in law school. I did an internship in Washington, got very interested in the policies, and that opened the door for me later to come down and work on the Senate Judiciary Committee and then the House Judiciary Committee. And that in turn led to uh, a leadership position at HUD and eventually probably the pinnacle, the capstone, the greatest job I've ever had working for President Trump directly in the White House. That's incredible. What did you do in the White House? So we did stuff on the books and off the books. On the books, I helped run the Office of Presidential Personnel. There's an important idea in Washington, and it is 100% true that personnel is policy. If you can pick the people, you can essentially pick the direction which the policy goes. And the Office of Presidential Personnel is responsible for picking all of the political appointees across administration. So in the executive branch, the large majority of people who work in the agencies and so forth are what are called career employees. They are there irrespective of the president, irrespective of politics. However, the policy layer, the people who actually steer the organization in one direction or other, 
are appointed by the president. And the office that oversees that is in the White House and it's called the Office of Presidential Personnel. So I helped run that. I was an advisor there. There's a lot of legal issues that arise in terms of, you know, who can be hired and who can be fired and what can, you know, if someone resigns, who can you move around? So that was kind of like the core thing. But sort of off the books, President Trump really loved the work that we did there. And I worked for probably the greatest manager that I've ever met, John McEntee. He ran the office. President Trump trusted John, was close to John. And because of that, we were often in the Oval Office with the president advising on all sorts of matters and finding creative solutions to many different problems, which was just exhilarating. So how does President Trump or former President Trump find a creative solution to getting out of the legal difficulty that he's in? Well, one thing that he does, I think, well, is that he drags things out. And that's important. He makes them fight for every inch. And the reason that works is because you never know what may happen, right? In New York City, he was being investigated by the DA there. And, you know, he fought for every inch. He dragged it out. And at a certain point, the DA switched and the new DA dropped that particular investigation. There are other ones. But my point is, I think that's one tactic. If they're coming after you, make them fight for every inch. He basically uh, made everyone wait a long, long time to release his tax forms. He did. But the way this all turned out, actually, I think just displays the bad faith in which the congressional committee operated. I actually wrote a piece about this in the Wall Street Journal like a year ago. The thing that happened here is they said the entire time we need it because there's a legislative purpose, right? The way the law is set up, the IRS cannot give out people's tax information as a general rule. It's guarded very closely. And the reason for that is that the government wants people to feel comfortable giving their uh, sensitive personal financial information to the IRS for purposes of taxation without worry that it'll be used against them in some other context. It's supposed to be sort of a, you know, a real wall. And the Congress broke that wall on a claim of uh, essentially legislative need. But in the end of the day, what did they legislate over? What really happened? What did they discover? All they did in the end was in the waning days of the Democrat control of Congress, they released it essentially to embarrass the former president, which just says to show you, like they've gone to the courts and said, we really need this. This is very important. We have a proper legislative purpose. And in the end, what, what really came of it? Nothing. Every president uh, releases their tax returns. Trump made an issue of not doing it. Why? I'm not sure actually why he didn't want to release it, but he's under no obligation to do so. And, and the people who were put to vote had the opportunity to draw a negative inference, right? Like in law. If you're supposed to produce certain documents and you don't, ultimately, the judge or the jury is entitled to draw a negative inference. That's essentially the punishment. Oh, you don't want to show me something? It's probably bad. So when Trump didn't want to release it, people were free to draw a negative inference and say, I don't want to vote for him. Maybe he should his taxes, et cetera. But that question was put directly to the public and they voted in 2016 for him. So as far as I'm concerned, I think that, you know, he ran the risk of a negative inference. People were entitled to draw that and sort of no harm done. What does Merrick Garland do now? If he indicts Trump, Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina already said that there's going to be riots in the street. If he doesn't, and there's real evidence against uh, the president, if there is, then he looks like he's not doing his job. So what does he do? Well, he, he lets the special counsel do his work and hopes the special counsel doesn't come out with a finding prior to the election, I suppose, if uh, he's not going to find anything. I mean, look, my personal feeling about all this is that it's essentially a lot of nonsense. But for those people who think that there's something there, what he does is he lets the special counsel work and he stays clear of the special counsel's operation. So in other words, Merrick Garland, in a sense, hides behind the special counsel and shields himself politically. Yes. I mean, that's the only move. But, you know, I don't have a great deal of faith in Merrick Garland. I, and the reason for that is, you know, he used to have a good reputation when he was nominated to the Supreme Court. I mean, remember people used to tell me, oh, look at all these things he's done. And I didn't believe it because I sort of feel like the liberals essentially stick together and so, you know, on the cases that matter, he will be a reliable vote 
for the left, no matter sort of what the merits of the case are. But putting that point aside, the real tell of the sort of person he is, is that if you recall toward the beginning of the administration, there were a lot of angry parents going to school boards and saying, you know, like, this is happening in our schools. We don't like this indoctrination that's occurring. And a letter was sent by the Justice Department, essentially reminding people that uh, their rhetoric, if it goes too far, could be prosecuted. And when he was brought in front of the Judiciary Committee for Oversight and asked about that, like, you're intimidating people, you're telling them they can't speak their mind. He said, essentially, that all we were doing was reminding them of their obligations. Oh, that's nonsense. If you get a letter from the IRS commissioner telling you before you file your taxes, I just want to remind you that failure to file properly can subject you to these penalties. What they're really trying to do is make you steer very far from the line, which if you look in the cases like New York Times against Sullivan about free speech, the Supreme Court talks about the importance of not forcing people to steer very far away from the line, of letting the people speak openly. And he did that. And that letter was clear, obviously designed to uh, intimidate people and to sit there under oath and tell people and pretend like you don't know what you did is ridiculous and shows that he's not a serious person. So I don't have any real faith that he's going to do the right thing here. He will be subject to the political pressure. And frankly, you know, maybe it's good that he's not overseeing the investigation. They have a special counsel. I don't really know that guy's reputation, but perhaps he can withstand it better than Garland. Looking at the other side of the coin, now that the Republicans are in control of the House of Representatives, do they uh, start investigating Hunter Biden? They've already said that they want to do that. And I think it is worth looking into. I mean, particularly because we know now that the FBI went out of its way to essentially block a thorough uh, a study of that prior to the 2020 election. In other words, if that thing had been litigated and gone through and really investigated, you might say, well, this is a waste of our time. Let's focus on something else. But you have this email where someone's talking about, you know, a point for the big guy. It's certainly suspicious. It's what you call in the Talmud, Reglaim Ladover. And, you know, there's probable cause to look into it more. And it was essentially squelched for political reasons. So I think they absolutely go look at that as well as a whole bunch of other things. But that's a very serious matter. How does this guy without a lot of experience suddenly get paid millions of dollars? I mean, there's a, a, a reasonable inference here that needs to be investigated. And frankly, if he is clean and nothing happened, he should be exonerated. So I think it's a good uh, thing for them to look at. Dan, if you were the House Judiciary Chairman and there's now a majority how do you think of that? I think for our audience in particular, with your background, what are day one, day two? You know, as we were recording this, uh, McCarthy still isn't speaker. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know what that exactly that means. But what does that look like from the chairman's perspective and how he looks at sort of the all encompassing thing? Does the House become a uh, basically just an investigative body or is it is there something else that we're missing? As you know, obviously, when you control the House, and you're not in control of the Senate or the White House. The easiest thing is to do oversight because the legislative process is much more difficult. Even if you pass something in the House, it may need a supermajority in the Senate. The president may veto it. So the temptation is to, uh, you know, lean heavily on oversight. I think actually, if it were me, what I would do is I would try to have a healthy mix and try to find ways to compromise. And compromise doesn't mean like I want to do 100 and you want to do zero. So let's meet at 50. It might mean like I really want thing A and you really want thing B and we can just pair them, right? So you're not watering down your principle on an issue. You're just sort of putting together packages of perhaps unrelated things that could move together. So that's one thing I would look at. On the oversight side, I think what's really important is strategically, you can get bogged down and spend a great deal of time trying to send subpoenas to the administration, which will be ignored and fought and litigated and never, ever produce anything. Because what will happen is if you issue a subpoena and it's not complied with, the process is the House votes on it. And, it, and can refer it to the Justice Department. And ultimately, the way to enforce a subpoena is for the 
U.S. attorney of D.C. to essentially go into court and seek contempt against the person who's not appearing? Well, is the U.S. attorney answers to the attorney general. Is the attorney general going to send someone to enforce a subpoena against a White House official? Obviously not. It's basically a total waste of time. The only thing it does is get some headlines. It's theater. So on the oversight side, what I would do if I were chairman is I would focus my time on subpoenaing people outside of the administration who could build the case that the Republicans want. My personal opinion is that we should be fighting the culture wars every day. So I would be subpoenaing not the head of the Department of Education or subordinate within that agency. What I'd be doing is I would be subpoenaing the head of school committees. And I would be bringing in kids who say that they've been essentially uh, punished for speaking their minds in the public schools and say, how do you answer that? Because the head of a school board who, you know, try to shut down parents who are upset or who try to bully kids, they're not going to have the Justice Department defending their subpoenas. I think that's something that most people wouldn't do, actually. It's a little, sort of a novel approach that I think could be very valuable here instead of getting bogged down. There's a lot of sort of ways to kind of bank shot it and go at things from the side that can't be obstructed as easily. Let's do one more before we go. We appreciate Dan being here. Dan, what do you see happening in uh, two years? Give us your political prediction. What's happening in the presidency? Who's going to win? What's happening? I don't want to get too much into the prediction business, but I'll tell you, to me, the lay of the land. I think that the Republicans have a very tough slog for two reasons. One is the mail-in ballots. Once you have a situation where you can essentially mail out ballots, even to people who didn't ask for them on a mass scale, you invite abuse. As just one small example, you could imagine a ballot harvesting in the sense of people go to, say, low propensity voters. Maybe they're in nursing homes. They're not that aware of what's going on. They say, hey, we'll help you fill out your ballot. Is that technically illegal? Uh, no, but the left is much better at organizing and doing that sort of thing. And if you think about Trump, he only lost by 46,000 votes across three states. So think about that. Like, do you think Wisconsin, I think, was what? Was it 16 or 20,000 votes he lost by? You don't think that there could be 30,000 people in nursing homes in Wisconsin where organized Democrats could have gone and said, hey, we'll help you fill out your ballots. So, and, and normally those people would never get ballots because it never would have been mailed to them. But once you're in the business of sending up ballots to anybody on your list, the opportunities for that sort of mischief arise. And again, the Democrats are much better at capitalizing on that than the Republicans. So that's sort of structural problem one. Structural problem two is there's been about 40 years of indoctrination, of liberal indoctrination, starting in you know elementary schools and then high schools and then secondary education. And so you have just an electorate that's just been brainwashed to be much more left-leaning and angry about it in a way that I think, you know, previous generations weren't. And the Republicans did not do a good job, frankly, over the last 20 or 30 years of combating that when they had the chance. I mean, even the secretary of education, toward the very end, she started doing something about, you know, anti-conservative bias on the university campus as well. What were you doing for the first three and a half years? It was a strategic blunder, and I think it's costing us now. So I think those are going to be the two big hurdles. Uh, you know, on the other hand, the left is maybe overplaying their hand with some of the really outrageous stuff they're doing. I think it's sort of things are trending toward the left, but they may overplay their hands. And the last thing I want to say, unrelated to the, your question, is that I've known you for a number of years now, Maury, and I've always been struck at not just at your good takes, your good political takes, but your dedication to community work, to community service, to really being like a public servant for the Jewish community and a lot of the times in situations where it's not been so easy. So I want to thank you for all the work that you've done. Very kind words and, and an old colleague from Capitol Hill, Dan Huff, and we appreciate him being on the program. We appreciate his, uh, his insights and I think the listeners also uh, learned a lot. So we appreciate you. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. Excellent interview with uh, Dan Huff. My takeaway from it, and maybe it's just confirming what I already think, but I think these investigations are a waste of time for the most part. Now, I understand if there's criminal behavior 
you have to look into it and you can't allow that to go unmonitored. On the other hand, you take a look at the whole January 6th and I introduced this as, was it a riot? Was it an insurrection? Whatever you call it, Trump lost, even though he didn't admit it. He was disgraced in a sense by losing and let him go. You're spending an entire year in Congress when there's so many important issues that have to be solved in America trying to investigate the former president. And like Dan was saying, he's probably never going to be charged. Dan also said the same thing about uh, investigating Hunter Biden. He said, oh, fine, look into it. But if the guy didn't do anything wrong, so just exonerate him and get over it. And don't waste time on needless investigations. I think people are much more interested in uh, solving the inflation crisis, oil prices, uh, social security viability for the long term, uh, the debt limit, competition with China. These are things that I want to see Congress working on, not meaningless investigations trying to pin someone they don't like to the wall. Dan highlighted again the difference between theater and tactics. I think it's important just because when he was talking about what he would do if he was in charge, okay, look, there's a lot of theater and then there's the tactics. And tactically speaking, I mean, could you imagine Congress pulling someone's local school board or their local university or somewhere else and, and talking about things? I'll never forget when I was in Congress and we talked about steroids and baseball and we spent months doing that with absolutely no real impact, but it was great theater. When you hear someone talk about that, the difference between tactics and strategy and theater, it's very insightful. So I always like when we can peel the onion and learn a little bit. And also when we look back at this six months from now or eight months from now, it'll be interesting to see whether or not they took that advice or not. It'll also be interesting to see if Merrick Garland uh, really does indict Donald Trump. Basically, uh, Dan felt that Garland's credibility has been compromised and he doesn't expect uh, an indictment. But I think uh, it's for the voters to decide in 2024 if they want him to be president again based on his conduct on that day and based on his track record as president, based on any other competition that might uh, run against him. Okay, so now we're up to our influencer of the week or person of influence, however you want to say it. This week, I'm going to pick a very controversial person. His name is Itamar Ben-Gavir. We've heard a lot about him. He's the new National Security Minister of Israel. Now, the reason for my choosing him is not necessarily because I agree or disagree with what the person did. It's just that the person did something that caused a big ruckus. We know that uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir ascended uh, the Temple Mount, Harabayit, on the fast of uh, the 10th of Teves. And he was there for a total of, well, there were two reports, one said 13 minutes and one said 15 minutes, which is hardly enough time to even say Shaman Shmones, right? So uh, he wasn't up there for a long time. It's not like uh, he threw rocks at anyone in the walk for anything like that. But there was a round of condemnations by the U.S., by Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Turkey, Qatar, Bahrain, France, and the U.K., just to mention the ones that uh, caught my eye. So anyone who's got the ability to bring down the wrath of the world on him like he did and, uh, and to call attention to himself uh, deserves to uh, be the influencer of the week. And the reason why he did it is very simple. Basically, uh, Israel is trying to uh, reassert its uh, sovereignty over Jerusalem. It's trying to uh, reassert its control over uh, the West Bank and make sure that uh, it also restores its deterrence. And this is part of the uh, cat and mouse game that we're going to see a lot over the next couple of months. We're going to see Israel takes small steps to try to see exactly what they can get away with and what they can't. You know, condemnations by foreign nations, nobody likes them, but they're not really that serious when it comes down to it. But we're going to see more of this. And to me, this was a test by Ben Gavir and the Netanyahu administration to see exactly what the reaction of the other side would be. We know there was one rocket by Hamas fired supposedly at Israel, which landed in Gaza, as many of the rockets do, thank God. We're going to see more of this uh, going on. So that's my influencer of the week, Itamar Ben-Gavir. 
My influencer of the week is more domestic to where I live, not involving any foreign policy, not involving anything that global, but is really speaks to the American concern when it comes to travel. As was widely reported, um, Southwest Airlines had, I don't know, 80, 90 percent, some insane number of cancellations. And the entire American public was focused on this for days, worried about travel, worried about their loved ones and things like that, and just nightmare stories all over the place. And the influence of the week for me is Secretary of Transportation Peter Buttigieg, who came out publicly again and again in a forceful way. He demanded that Southwest Airlines reimburse passengers. He asked to fix it, and he became sort of the front-facing hero of this on the issue. The reason why I believe he's the influencer of the week on this is because this, to me, is a, uh, a rare opportunity for uh, an elected official, or an appointed official in his case, to put himself on the front of the news. He's someone who is growing in influence. I mean, you have to remember that only a few years ago, he was a mayor of a very small town, a very small one. And he's since gone to be a leading force. And he got Southwest Airlines to respond to him on this as well and will continue to do. So the reason to me is the influence of the week is because to be able to command that attention as a cabinet secretary, certainly one that is not its secretary of state or the attorney general, one who gets the news daily, is remarkable. I just think that you got to continue to look at him as someone who is going to um, be looked at as a Democratic presidential candidate, as he was previously, as a Democratic leader. He has a lot of things on his side, including the fact that he is able to go on TV in moment's notice and command attention and command media response. And I also saw where Southwest Airlines decided that they're comping 25,000 points to every person who had a flight canceled during the course of the holiday season. Yeah. So obviously Buttigieg did his job. It's interesting when we look at these influencers, like you mentioned, people may not like the individuals, they may not respect the politics or the policies or anything else like that. But these are people who are able to influence an entire week, influence politics, foreign policy, and they make the news. Are you ready for your fearless forecast? I think the fearless forecast, and I feel like I'm going to get myself in trouble here because last week I was asked about the McCarthy speakership and I responded that I, I thought it was mainly political uh, uh, spin and I thought it was going to be pretty much a cakewalk. And as we're recording this, it's not a cakewalk. And he's still, I think on three rounds, he wasn't able to make it. But I am going to double down on the Kevin McCarthy thing in a bigger way, which is I'm going to say that not only is he speaker and sort of sticks it out to be speaker, but on top of that, I believe that he consolidates power within the House Republican base there. Nationally, he becomes the sort of force to be reckoned with on the Republican scene because as much as, you know, a DeSantis may be the voice, as much as Trump may be the voice, et cetera, in politics, the ability to have an opponent, the ability to have someone you're on the other side of on a day-to-day -day basis is extremely powerful. And there's only going to be one guy between the president, the Senate majority leader, and the Republican Party, and that's going to be be soon to be Speaker McCarthy. So my fearless forecast is not only is he elected speaker, but when you look back, you see he is sort of in the way Gingrich was perceived in the 90s, which was um, the Republican Party, a lot of it ended up going and running through him. My fearless forecast is, is that I believe this is the time where McCarthy not only uh, may get elected by razor thin margin to be speaker, but going forward, it's full steam ahead just because he will be able to control the narrative in a place where he's the only thing standing between the Democratic Party and what they want to get done. By the time this airs, we'll know for sure. As far as my fearless forecast, we'll have to wait an extra week. But my fearless forecast is that Joe Biden announces on or about January 17th, which is Dr. Martin Luther King Day in America, that he's running again for president. 
And I think he's going to choose that date uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, he'll find a way to uh, honor uh, Dr. King's memory in that regard, because Biden does have a good record on uh, his relations uh, and his uh, work on behalf of the African-American community in America. It also ties in with his decision or the Democratic Party's decision, but it was Biden's inspiration to make South Carolina uh, the first primary state in 2024. We know that South Carolina gave Biden his uh, big victory that catapulted him into the lead after people were writing him off. And also South Carolina has a very huge uh, African-American population as well. So I think Biden picks that day on or about to announce that he's going to run again in 2024. I love that your forecast has a specific date. Does it have a specific time also on it, uh, Benjamin? I'm very impressed. High noon. High noon. <laughs> you heard it here first. You are listening to Power Politics, unpacking the power players shaping our world, a Mishpacha podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating and share with your friends. Have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on Twitter at the Mishpacha or at mishpacha.com forward slash power politics. This episode was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts with sound design by Cedar Media Studios. See you next week.